I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Trudy Schaefer. Ms. Schaefer is the Senior Director for Program of League of Women Voters of California and the League of Women Voters of California Education Fund. Previously, she was President of the Sacramento League and the California League's Legislation Director. Ms. Schaefer works in citizen education and in advocacy with focuses on advocacy on league priorities at the state capitol, as well as on a number of ballot measure campaigns, including redistricting, campaign finance, and budget reform measures. In 2001, she represented the league as a member of the Speaker's Commission on the California Initiative process. Since the passage of Prop 11 in 2008, she has worked to ensure effective selection and functioning of the Citizens Redistricting Commission. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Trudy Schaefer. Thank you, and thank you very much for being here. I think this is an exciting topic, and uh, the great number of events all around the state that are examining the initiative process is, really give testimony to the fact that Californians are very concerned, and as our title of our uh, program tonight says, about the question, can direct democracy be saved? We want to talk about whether it needs to be saved, should it be saved, if it should, what is it uh, that should be done? And I want to say that this is very fitting that we're meeting about this on today, October 5th, so soon before the 100th anniversary of the election at which California adopted the three elements of the initiative process, the referendum, and the recall. And of course, at that same election, gave women in California the right to vote. So that was an outstanding October in 1911. But after a century of having the initiative and the referendum in California, many people wonder if in fact it did level the playing field as it was intended to, taking power away from those um, large corporate interests that had uh, really taken over the legislature and uh, many uh, other parts of the, of the government. Um, has it advanced the cause of good government? Um, or has it really contributed to governmental dysfunction? So those are the kinds of things that we will examine tonight. I'm going to uh, give you some brief information about our different panelists, and then we'll kick it off with a question or two. Um, and I don't have these in the order of uh, the way you're sitting, so I'm going to shuffle papers, if you'll bear with me. To my immediate right is Joel Fox, who operates Joel Fox Consulting, a public affairs and political consulting firm. He is president also of the Small Business Action Committee, founded in 2003 to battle for small business on important political issues. And prior to uh, starting that firm in 1999, um, he was the president and a uh, longtime me uh, uh, member working for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. 19 years with Howard Jarvis, president from 1986 to 1998. He's a co-publisher and editor-in-chief of the website Fox and Hounds Daily, which offers commentary and news on California business and politics. I'll bet many of you um, visit that site. Over the years, Joel has taken a key role in many statewide and local ballot initiatives and uh, in their campaigns. He has authored hundreds of opinion articles which have been um, published in national and state newspapers and websites. Um, he's written several books. Uh, I believe the first one was uh, The Legend of Proposition 13 in 2003, um, a chapter in an anthology about the tax revolt an essay in about what baseball means to me in a uh, Baseball Hall of Fame um, yes. publication. Yes. And um, not uh, the least of all that is that his first novel was published uh, a year ago in the summer of 2010, Lincoln's Hand, a mystery and suspense novel, and I have read it and yes. had a great time. Thank you. Visiting <laughs> well, Washington and Boston Bob, and too, uh, yeah. especially, of course, Springfield, yeah. Illinois. Thank you. Uh, to Joel's right is Carlos Moreno, who is now of counsel in the law firm of Irel and Manella uh, LLP. Prior to joining Irel, he served as an associate justice of the California Supreme Court for a decade, leaving the bench uh, just this past March. Justice Moreno began his career as a deputy city attorney with the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office. He prosecuted criminal and civil consumer protection cases and handled politically sensitive and legislative matters as special counsel to the city attorney. He was nominated to the federal bench by President Bill Clinton and unanimously confirmed to the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California in 1998. He served as a federal district court judge for over three years, presiding over a broad range of complex civil and criminal matters. 
Um, he has certainly been a member of a number of uh, distinguished commissions. Of the, he has served as president of the Mexican-American um, Bar, Bar Association. League of Women Voters members I've spoken to have particularly taken note of uh, his being the former chair of a Blue Ribbon Commission on Children in Foster Care, and he is the former co-chair of the Child Welfare Council. And uh, as he will point out, I think, in social issues, he was the dissenting vote in the California Supreme Court's decision on Proposition 8. Next in our line is Peter Schrag, who um, I know as a Sacramentan because he served for 19 years as editorial page editor of the Sacramento Bee. He is a lifelong journalist. Um, be, since his retirement in 1996 and until 2009, he still wrote a weekly column for the Bee, and he now writes a weekly piece for the blog California Progress Report. He's taught at numerous colleges and graduate schools, including UC Berkeley, and he has been a visiting uh, scholar at Berkeley's Institute of Government uh, Studies um, since 1998. He's also the author of articles and reviews in a number of magazines and newspapers. And again, uh, there's quite an interesting list of books. The first one of, uh, that I think probably many of you have known about was Paradise Lost, California's Experience, America's Future, published in 1998. Mm -hmm. Recent books include Final Test, The Battle for Advocacy in um, America's Schools, and there is California, America's High Stakes Experiment from 2006. The most recent one is Not Fit for Our Society, Immigration and Nativism in America, that was just published in paperback last June. And when I, uh, I took note of uh, Joel's interest in baseball, and I remembered that I had recently read a column in The Bee by Peter about uh, baseball and his knowledge of what uh, the Moneyball um, experience, what it has done to the, to the art and science of baseball. So we have quite a, an interesting group of people, follow, not, last of, uh, not least of which is our last panelist, Bob Stern. Bob is uh, the person who wrote the book, and by that I mean... Um, I'll get the title right if I shall shuffle my papers. Um, he, as the president of the Center, of Governmental Center for Governmental Studies, um, has been drafting and analyzing governmental and political reform laws and initiatives for a number of years. He began as a staff attorney for the California Legislature's Assembly Elections Committee. He served as elections counsel to the California Secretary of State's office. And among the initiatives that he drafted, uh, perhaps the one that he's best known for, was that he was principal co-author of California's 1974 Political Reform Act, which was passed by 70% uh, 70 vote of the people. He was also a principal drafter of the City of Los Angeles's ethics and public campaign financing laws in 1990. Um, after the passage of, uh, well, a little bit after the passage of the Political Reform Act, Bob was the first general counsel for the Fair Political Practices Act, um, coming from there to the Center for Governmental Studies in 1983. As I said, he wrote the book, De Democracy by Initiative, Shaping California's Fourth Branch of Government, first uh, edition in 1992 and updated in 2008. And those of you who have seen it know that it is a massive tome and really covers the territory quite well. But part of what we'll talk about is, so what has happened since then and what is coming up in the future? Among this distinguished panel, I would suggest that we have a couple of practitioners, um, maybe more than, well, two practitioners, one of them is a theorist, perhaps. We have someone who's come to the, uh, maybe two uh, theorists, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have someone who's also been very involved in the initiative process uh, from the standpoint of what comes to the courts. And then we have someone who is sometimes a big critic of the initiative process. Sometimes, well, we'll have to see what you have to say, Peter. Uh, but perhaps I'll start by asking Justice Moreno, uh, give us a little bit of, of the uh, flavor of what you've, uh, how you've encountered the initiative process as a justice. Okay, first of all, it's a, it's a pleasure uh, uh, to be here. I'm a a native uh, Angelino, and although I've lived here all my life, I've never been in this theater. Growing up, I remember it as a Japanese language uh, film uh, theater, and I used to get a haircut next door at Mahler's <gasps> Barber College for 25 cents, and it was free if you went to the back. Uh, <laughs> so it's great to be here. My, I, I'm humbled to be here with uh, such distinguished uh, panelists, certainly uh, more well-informed than I am on the initiative process, but I thought I would just... Uh, give you uh, a judge's perspective, uh, a justice's perspective from the California Supreme Court, 
who in 10 years on the court did encounter a number of uh, issues relating to the initiative process, not the least of which was uh, the Proposition 8 matter that the court considered in 2008 and 2009. But, you know, in the course of, the, of, of so many, the last hundred years, uh, initiatives and propositions have come before the California Supreme Court in innumerable occasions. I think uh, there have been, since its inception, and these guys would know, over 400 or close to 400 uh, initiatives that have been voted on by the people in the state of California, uh, eight of which I think deal with the Chiropractic Act, about which I know nothing, and why that's in the Constitution and why we have to go through the initiative process to pass laws in that respect, I'll let the experts opine on. But there have been a number of issues over the years. Uh, Prop 13, uh, Prop 14, which some of you may remember is the Rumford uh, Fair Housing uh, Act that was subsequently ruled unconstitutional by the uh, U.S. Uh, Supreme Court. Uh, more recently, uh, initiatives uh, that have come uh, to the court on, at various stages, uh, dealing with affirmative action, uh, Proposition 187, uh, term limits, districting or redistricting. All of these in one form or another have come to the court. They've come to the court pre-election uh, to seek an injunction uh, when the court is, is very uh, reluctant to interfere in that process. <clears throat> They've come to the court more often uh, post-election when I think the court is more willing to deal with those issues uh, on the merits. They come on such uh, basic issues as the wording of the initiative, as to the uh, language that was contained in petitions, uh, as opposed to what actually appeared on the ballot that came before us uh, in connection with one of the propositions, I'm not sure if it was Prop 21 or not. They come to us on challenges to the uh, single subject rule when uh, more than one issue uh, is encompassed within a, a proposition. Uh, and I'd be interested to hear what my co-panelists think about the single subject uh, rule and the concept of log rolling when uh, you try to put as much into a proposition to see if you get enough yes uh, votes. Uh, that's a subject on which I've taken a stand and I think that our court has not been strict enough on a single subject and the definition of what is germane and what isn't. I saw litigation on Proposition 115, which was a huge reform of the criminal justice system. The Three Strikes uh, initiative came before us, uh, challenged on, uh, on multiple grounds. And uh, Prop 98 came before the court, and now Prop 22 with respect to the existence or non-existence of a redevelopment agency. So uh, this, the impact of, of direct democracy in the form of initiatives has been a, a, a uh, provided a fairly steady diet uh, for the courts to decide. And uh, again, I'm interested in what my colleagues have to say about the process as to how initiatives are written, how they're funded, uh, particularly how they're written because the court, uh, one of its jobs, of course, is to construe language in, in these propositions that often go on and on and on and run on sentences and so forth. So I think if one, were to suggest one way of reforming the process that to avoid these court challenges, that might be one, one avenue of exploration, certainly. But I guess the point I want to make is that uh, a lot of litigation arises out of initiatives and it often devolves upon the court to make a decision uh, one way or the other. And that's been my perspective. As a citizen, I have other views, but I'll wait to hear my panelists' views. Thank you. Um, Bob, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of your ideas of what's wrong and what needs to be fixed? I think you have a couple of challenges for the audience. Yeah, um, I, I do. Um, thank you very much for having me here. I really appreciate it, and thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, um, the challenges I have for the audience, and in and, and your question and answer period, maybe you'll have answers to these challenges, but here are the two questions I, I would pose to you. Name me an initiative that's passed since the beginning where the voters regretted passing it, where the voters said we made a huge mistake. Now, I can think of a couple. Prop 8 might be one that where the voters are going to reverse themselves in four years, the, the gay marriage ban. I think they will. 
because remember, two-thirds of us who were 65 and over voted for Prop 8, and two-thirds of you who are 35 and under voted against Prop 8, and we're not going to be around as long as you are. So We hope you, so. <laughs> <laughs> so Prop 8 will be reversed. Prop 13 would be passed by even a bigger margin today. I heard somebody say Prop 13 in the audience. I think it would pass by two-thirds vote today. So that's my first challenge to you, is name an initiative that's passed where the voters were fooled into passing it. Now, I think they were fooled into rejecting initiatives, but not passing it. Only about a third of the initiatives passed. The second challenge I have for you, and this is one where I don't have an answer, and I hope you do. The circulation process, getting initiatives on the ballot, I think is the worst way of deciding what gets, gets on the ballot. If you have enough money, if you have $2 million or more, you're guaranteed to be on the ballot because you only need 5% or 8% of the voters to sign it. And people outside the supermarkets, the most effective way, by the way, to gather a signature on a petition is to say, today is my birthday, will you sign this petition? <laughs> and people will, will do it. Don't worry, you, we, we'll get to vote on it, just sign the petition. Uh, and you can make lots of money circulating petitions. So I've come up with a couple of really wacky ideas that are, that are not acceptable. I'll just give you a couple of those ideas and then you come up with an idea that's better. I say pay the state the $2 million. You know, reduce the budget deficit. It's going to get on the ballot anyway. Just pay the state the $2 million. Well, people don't like that. Candidates, by the way, pay to get on the ballot. So why wouldn't ballot measures? Well, the other way I have is collect 50,000 signatures and then take a poll whether voters think they should be on the ballot or not. Well, people don't like polls. But the third thing, which I think really has promise, is the whole question of the Internet, is to put the petition on the, on the Internet and let people take a look at it and sign on the Internet. And then I have an idea that my colleague Tracy Weston doesn't like, but here's my idea. You can also sign something saying, I don't want it on the ballot, and that counts as a signature against. And so you'd have a mini campaign for and against the initiative, whether it should go on the ballot or not. But that's my challenge. Come up with a way that's a better way to qualify these things. Because again, if you have enough money, you get on the ballot. If you don't have money, you don't. We have the shortest time period in the country, uh, just about the shortest time period, to collect the signatures, 150 days. Um, and so we have suggested that it be extended to one year. And many people tell us that would really cu cut down the cost of putting it on the ballot and let grassroots groups uh, get on the ballot as well. So those are my ch two challenges to you. Please either talk to me afterwards or during your question and answer, come up with some answers. Mm -hmm. Perhaps I'll ask uh, Joel, and it, I know it isn't fair to make you be the defender of the initiative process, but uh, as especially in your years uh, with the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, I think you have been um, certainly a leader in a point of view of uh, using the initiative process and using the legislative process um, on tax and budget and fiscal issues for the state. What's your reaction to, um, to Bob's criticism of the initiative and maybe a little bit to, uh, is the problem with the signature gathering? Well, you know, uh, it's interesting that the topic we're talking about is saving direct democracy. And when you look at the polling, 75% of the people like direct democracy and only 20% of the people like the legislature. So maybe we should be talking about how do we save the legislature. Uh, <coughs> uh, you know, my, 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 my thought is, you know, that the, the initiative process certainly has a role, and I, I have no problem defending it, Trudy. And, and I served on the commission with you, and I actually served on two commissions. Governor Wilson put me on an initiative commission back in the 90s, and then Bob Hertzberg, mm -hmm. with you, Trudy, put me on a commission around 2001 when he was speaker. Um, and so people have been looking at this for a long time. Uh, and as a defender, I understand that there are some places where we can have reforms. One of the reforms that came out of the commission that we served on was to have an indirect initiative, which means that the legislature, you do an initiative, it would go into the legislature, they'd give you some comments, you'd make some reforms and move it forward. And, and I felt you could do that if you had an incentive for an indirect initiative. And we had one in the past, Bob could tell you the history, uh, but um, it, it doesn't exist anymore. And maybe the, the incentive for this indirect procedure would be uh, fewer signatures to get it <clears throat> into the legislature. So there are ways to do that. Um, to the justice's comments, um, I absolutely agree with him. Uh, well, I don't know if it's agreement so much. As, as, as we said, we were talking upstairs, the, the courts have a role to play with the initiative process. They, they absolutely do. If, if an initiative passes by, passed by the people, violates 
the Constitution, then the courts have the role to step in and say so and remove the initiative. I've always believed that it doesn't, just because an initiative passes with a majority doesn't mean it's the law of the land. So the, the courts do have a role. But I do want to put something in perspective. In 100 years, in California, we've passed about 116 initiatives. Governor Brown, this last month, has been complaining that he has to deal with 600 bills that were passed in the last seven months. 600 bills that were passed in the last seven months, and in 100 years, we've passed 116 initiatives. So there is a problem with that process as well that, that needs fixing. And I don't think that the initiative, uh, I think the initiative uh, responds in many cases to problems. We get into the funding. I don't want to take too much time here, but the funding, uh, Bob mentioned if you have $2 million, you can guarantee yourself a place on the ballot. Absolutely correct. But it doesn't, if you have a lot of money, it doesn't guarantee that you can pass an initiative. In the recent election, I'll give you two examples. The Mercury Insurance people had $17 million. The other side had less than a million. They lost their cause. And there was a second one in that election. PG&E. PG PG $50 million. Yeah, $50 million. And they lost their election. So you cannot buy your way. Uh, you cannot buy a law in the state of California. You can, you can defeat laws uh, if you don't like, if you have a lot of money, but you can't buy them. So a little quick introduction on some of the comments from me. Uh, very interesting. And now we've talked a little bit about the initiative process as the fourth branch of government. We've mentioned the legislature. We've mentioned the judicial branch. Uh, we haven't really talked too much about the executive branch, but I would like to go back to something I read on the Zocalo uh, website just today or yesterday. It looks like there's a new feature called Inside Out. Uh, a, a Uruguayan um, political scientist working now in Chile um, has commented that he's concerned that we have seemed to have so much anger about the legislature, so much interest in direct democracy that maybe we're um, endangering the very important representational part of our government. Uh, that in fact, it's fine to have a, a fourth branch that is direct democracy, but we must not give up the, the legislative, the actual represent, representative branch of, of uh, the way to make bill, uh, laws. What do you think about that, Peter? Well, I totally agree, and I think that the, the, the uh, I think that the, the initiative process, and I now mean this inter historically, um, every initiative uh, puts constraints on the legislature. Uh, by definition, that's what its purpose is. Um, it either requires the legislature to do something, or more often prohibits the legislature from doing something. Over time, that makes the legislature much less effective in dealing with new issues and new problems, which then frustrates the voters, who then go to the ballot and, and come back with another initiative. And if you look at the history of the last 30 years in this state, um, beginning, say, with Prop 13, which is, I think, everybody's favorite kind of landmark, um, we had a succession of things where you can trace initiative A to initiative B to Initiative C. Um, after Prop 13 passed, we passed the GAN spending limit. The GAN spending limit passed um, in 1987, Governor Duke Majin uh, deciding that the state and local governments had reached their spending limits, refunded a billion dollars to the taxpayers. Um, that took about 40% about of that money would have gone to the schools. In response, the school interests ran Prop 98 which then put a floor under uh, 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 school spending. Didn't quite work out the way they'd hoped, but, 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 uh, but that's what they did. Um, the legislature in succeeding years, uh, in order to meet its Prop 98 requirements, then took money from local governments, which then, of course, ran their own ballot measures. So we've had a series of these things uh, going on. I also want, if I may, Trudy, address mm -hmm. something that Justice Moreno said uh, and it's something that's mystified me over the years. Uh, Chief Justice Ron George, who you served with, um, uh, particularly toward the end of his career, but even, even in the middle of his career as Chief Justice, was very vocal uh, about the uh, problems created by the initiative process, particularly outside of the court, made speeches uh, and so on. Um, but, uh, and I, a couple of times I asked him, I said, well, if you're really so restive about it, why, did, why wasn't the court more diligent about applying the single subject 
restrictions. As you know, the Constitution says initiatives um, may not cover more than one subject to prevent log rolling. Uh, and it also, and, and, and this is one that's a little bit uh, nebulous, it also says that initiatives may be used uh, to amend the Constitution, but not to revise it. Uh, now, uh, this is sort of like telling big oranges from little oranges, and it's not quite easy to define, but the court had, has had a number of opportunities, as Justice, Justice Moreno mentioned, uh, to strike down initiatives, and that in itself would have put a restraint on uh, some of the initiatives that were passed. Uh, but, uh, and my, my guess is, and this is only me sitting outside the court, uh, which is a luxury, um, uh, that, uh, um, I, and I can still remember um, uh, Justice Otto Kaus's remark about um, uh, finding, uh, finding initiatives uh, before the court, and he said, it's a little bit like uh, going in the bathroom in the morning and finding an alligator in the bathtub. Um, and, 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 and I always wondered to what extent the justices themselves, who of course can be non-confirmed periodically and so on, were themselves a little bit intimidated by uh, what might have happened if they had struck down more, more there, initiatives. There was a, mm -hmm. a, 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 the, the political humorist from the beginning of the last century, the 20th century, Finley Peter Dunn, had a famous line that said, uh, the Supreme Court right. follows the election returns. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've been quoted as saying the legislative process at its best is far better than the initiative yeah. process at its best. The problem is the legislature does not be at its best very often. I mean, just this last uh, legislative session, they passed all these last-minute bills that had never been before committee. They were called gut and amend. Dan Walters, who's a Sacramento Bee reporter, calls them mushroom bills. I, I said, what do you mean by a mushroom bill? He said, well, they emerge in the middle of the night and they're surrounded by excrement. <laughs> <laughs> okay, That's, that was Dan Walters' term. But there are certain things that the legislature will never pass. The Political Reform Act, that was campaign disclosure, conflicts of interest and lobbying. The we had bills before the legislature on all three subjects, and the legislature said, forget it. We're not going to pass those bills. Um, uh, the, the Redistricting Commission. We tried to get the legislature to pass a redistricting commission, and they had many hearings on it and refused to do it, and the voters passed it. So there's certain things that you really need the initiative process to do. Yeah, we have a constitution, correct? Uh, the U.S. Constitution has been amended, I think, 26 times, including the Bill of Rights. The California Constitution, our chief pointed out, has been amended 500 times. But and most of those amendments... Most of those are legislative. Right, 400. As you said, there was only 100 initiatives that passed. Right. No, those, some of those are statutes. And, and, and the chiropractic initiatives you, you mentioned, those were all legislative amendments to ah, the initiative. Okay. It's yeah. interesting, the, starting with the act that I helped write, the Political Reform Act, we let the legislature amend that initiative provided it furthered the purposes of the initiative, and, and the bill was in print 10 days before the final vote. And most initiatives now, two-thirds of the initiatives now, let the legislature amend them. And the legislature has been fairly responsible, although the court has thrown out a couple of the amendments saying it didn't further the purposes. So um, the trend is to let the legislature get more involved with these initiatives, provided they further the purposes. Well, when the legislature is working correctly, and they'll hold hearings and fact-finding, and uh, there's a legislative history for a court to track as to what they actually meant. Mm -hmm. All that's missing uh, in the initiative process. Although and I'll have to admit that when, as, as Bob points out, with these mushroom bills, that legislative that's, history is not there. So the yeah. comparison that seemed so simple mm -hmm. is not, uh, at least in and the they last carry, couple and they of months, not so good. they carry more than one subject, frankly. The, 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 the SB 202 that would move initiatives from June to November uh, that the governor has on his desk right now also carries a second issue where he's going to take a rainy day fund that as the legislature put on the ballot for 2012 and, the, and this bill moves it to 2014. Two subjects. And the two-subject rule also affects legislative bills. Yeah, yeah, but there's, one, there's one difference. Statutory initiatives, uh, unless they provide for their own revision and, or amendment in California, are written in stone. Yeah. You can't change them without another vote of the people. Statutes passed by the legislature in the dark of night or whatever can be amended the next session or the next day. Uh, and so they are not cast in concrete. 
the way and initiatives are. I think that's are. the case with the Chiropractic Act. Yeah, yeah that's right. That uh, was well before the Political Reform Act. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Well, and that brings up one of the possible reforms that people talk about. Um, is there a way to um, increase the flexibility of the initiative process? Um, and I can well, suggest it, but a couple of you probably can speak to that. You wrote well, a whole book about it. I mean, <laughs> this, is our, this is the summary of our book, by the way, uh, Democracy by Initiative. It's online at cgs.org for free, so you can download it. And then we have a 400-page book that backs this up as well. So again, for free, you can download the, the book. But we do recommend that there should be more flexibility in the initiative process. And what we say is the proponents should be allowed to withdraw their initiative uh, at any time up until the time the ballot pamphlet is being printed because the legislature may respond to the initiative. They do respond oftentimes when there are enough signatures gathered. And if the legislature responds and passes something that's good, the initiative should be taken off the ballot. There was a classic case uh, a few years ago where there was a proposition, they circulated the signatures, they turned in some of the signatures, and the legislature passed their proposal. They said, great, wonderful, much better than our proposal, and lo and behold, they had turned in too many signatures. And so the measure appeared on the ballot anyway, and the proponents in the ballot pamphlet said, please vote no on our initiative, because the legislature is taking care of it. Fortunately, the majority of Californians voted no, but 40% did vote yes on it. <laughs> now, I used to think that proponents would not take advantage of things like the indirect initiative or of an opportunity to amend because they want to force the vote on their version. They sometimes really, uh, a cynic would say, put something on the ballot to embarrass the legislature, to embarrass particular people in politics. Do you think well, those are I mean, fair that, charges? I mean, that may occur on, on occasion, but I'll tell you one initiative that I actually sponsored, uh, and it, we, we put a, it was a tax initiative when I was with the Jarvis Association years ago, and we actually filed it as a legislative bill. We put a bill in the legislature, and uh, we ran it a couple of times, as I recall, on assessment districts. And I remember one chairman of a committee saying, there's a problem here, let's all get together and fix it. But the legislature did not want to fix it. That eventually became a successful initiative after two or three times trying to go through the legislature to make a change. And I know Prop 13 is always vilified in a lot of sessions, uh, but think about the fact that the property tax reform was a long-time discussion in California, and nobody did anything about it. Just over here at the Coliseum in 1957, 6,000 people showed up for a property tax protest. In 1968 and in 1972, uh, the assessor of Los Angeles County had an initiative to try to reform the property tax system because property taxes were getting to be too much. These were all warning signs. They were, those measures were defeated. These were all warning signs that there was a problem. When Ronald Reagan announced he was running for governor of California in his announcement speech, he talked about reforming the property tax so seniors wouldn't be chased out of their homes. Despite all of that, when nothing was done, I don't think, you know, it almost became inevitable when, when the, uh, uh, the taxes became so high that that Prop 13 passed by the margin it did. So I think you have to look at the history of some of these measures. Of course, you, I can also think of a lot of examples that I think right people... Uh, I can think of examples where um, uh, the legislature failed to act, and I think most people in this room probably would say it's a good thing they failed to act uh, because they because they were asked to act on terrible things. Um, and you can you know we can debate Proposition 187, we can debate Prop 209, all of which the legislature did nothing about, and which became valid um, measures. Um, we can, I can think of you know, any number of things. By the way, Bob, I think uh, one of the problems with your question about do the voters ever regret having passed something um, is that in many cases, the voters don't know anymore the price that they're paying for that three strikes being one. Um, do the voters really know uh, how much the, the whole sentencing scheme that they passed uh, with three strikes is costing the state every day, every year? Uh, that would uh, be, uh, better go to something else. I can't prove that, but it seems to me that uh, uh, the, the price uh, that the state pays for a lot of things, and we haven't talked about ballot box budgeting at all yet, uh, and that's of course a reform that I think is long overdue, uh, a requirement that 
that any spending measure that's put on the ballot, uh, either by the legislature or the voters, um, uh, should uh, provide for uh, the means to pay for the costs, uh, whether it's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's after-school program, which is costing the state 500 something million dollars a year, or it's, uh, or it's uh, bonds, uh, high-speed rail bonds, which may be very admirable, but who's, you know, who's gonna pay for that? Um, so there are a lot of things that I think, a lot of reforms that I think we could uh, think about that I think would make uh, the, the process a little more rational. Paul, do you think it's, uh, there are too many propositions? Uh, Even that, the voters. Uh, the voters are confused, I think. When, if I'm confused when you see so many things you have to vote on. I'm looking at uh, one proposition here, 1930, that uh, posed before the voters uh, an issue on daylight savings time. Uh, in 2008, uh, we saw the, I, mean, I know the chief refers to this, that on uh, the November 4th, 2008, uh, when gays lost a very valuable right, chickens gained very valuable ones. And sometimes I wonder if, if things that, you know, really shouldn't be tendered to, to but, the voters. But uh, hens never wanted to marry other hens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, yeah, I, I think there are too many measures on the ballot. Yeah. That's why I support the indirect initiative. But when there are too many on the ballot, as there were in 1990, in 1990, if you, some of you will remember this, I counted up the number of decisions I had to make. I had 100 decisions to make at the November ballot box. Now, it wasn't all, it was 28 ballot measures on the ballot. And the voters turned all but three down. And the ones they passed were very narrowly passed because most of the voters were saying, wait a minute, this is way too much, so we're gonna vote no on everything. So it self-corrects. This last election, very interestingly, there were nine initiatives on the ballot and the voters passed four, much to my surprise. In a down economy, they still passed four. So I would like to take our idea, the indirect initiative, we think one or two initiatives will be taken off the ballot each time, and we think that would be really terrific for the voters. But you have to remember, there's not an initiative that gets on the ballot unless the legislature has refused to, to deal with the issue. Because the, the initiative proponents find it much, much cheaper to go to the legislature first. I would like to ask Peter on his proposal. I'll just challenge you on your proposal about, uh, and I understand the idea behind uh, declaring if you're going to uh, uh, raise a fee or where, where's it going to come from or, or cut a tax, where's the money going to come from? Because my concern is, how does it play out in reality? Uh, we know that w when they do polls about, well, what shall we cut in California, about the only thing that ever gets uh, approval for cutting is prisons. So I could almost see that someone would put an initiative on the ballot and automatically say, I'm going to cut this tax, and the way I'm going to pay for it is I'm going to cut prisons, even though the prisons are in trouble now, uh, and, and it may not be a re realistic move. How do you control for that? Well, you, I think you're asking uh, the opposite uh, of my question, which is um, how do you control for an initiative that's going to increase prison costs by who knows how many hundreds of billions of dollars um, uh, uh, because people think it's free? Uh, or, or, or as I say, hospital bonds, or rail bonds, or stem cell research, $6 billion for stem cell research uh, in California. An appealing thing, especially after George Bush blocked stem federal money. Um, but is, should California be in the business of, of, of spending, as I say, it's $3 billion for the bonds and $6 billion with interest to repay them, we're still paying for them. Um, is that, uh, you know, and that's presented as a free good. It's, mm -hmm. It costs you nothing. No tax increase, nothing. So it seems to me, uh, just by way of informing the voters, it would help. Well, it does seem to me that both of you have are right in, in certain ways because I, I am concerned about the, the lack of flexibility. Whether you're cutting taxes or bringing in a new program, you're tying the hands of the legislature when they make up their next budget and they have to deal with a smaller amount of money given the programs that they have to, the, the few discretionary things that they have that they have to fund. And I don't think you can ignore the lowering of taxes and requiring that people would then um, compensate for that uh, loss of revenue. So, so it is a problem.
problem. I don't really have a good answer. I wish that all of us had a good answer. I wonder, I've, one of the things we hear about is more legislative oversight. Is that a way to get the, the uh, voters better informed? Once these programs are in place, is that, some, is that where the initiative and the legislative process every, can blend? Every other state has some kind of provision that sunsets uh, statutory initiatives after a period of time or allows, or allows the legislature to revise or, or repeal in many states. But anyway, California is the only state where there's no, there's, there's no way to address it after it's passed. So it seems to me allowing that input after the fact, uh, after five years or whatever it is, uh, you know, uh, standing on their heads or, you know, doing it with their left hand or whatever, uh, but something that would allow the legislature to get back into the act. See, I disagree with that because the Political Reform Act, I can guarantee you the legislature would try to repeal as much of the Political Reform Act as they could. <laughs> I'll gar guarantee it. Um, term limits, the legislature would repeal term limits. Okay. So the legislature would, yeah. would repeal the redistricting commission clearly after five years. So there are certain things that the legislature really um, can't do that the initiative process can do. You know, let's go from that aspect of money to the other aspect of money. One of the big criticisms that we hear about the initiative process is how much it costs. Um, Bob's talked about how much it costs to qualify, but what about campaigns? Um, so many people seem really disgusted by the, uh, the size of the, the um, treasury of a campaign committee. Um, there's also the question of where is that money spent, where did it come from? Some of the, re the proposals that we hear are along those lines. And I think if Bob gets his microphone in hand, do you want to speak at all to proposals about disclosure and uh, campaign financing? Um, thank you. The, in terms of campaign finance, unfortunately, the United States Supreme Court has ruled that you cannot limit any spending or contributions to initiative campaigns. That means, I know that some of you are going to come up with a solution, ban paid circulators. Can't do it, I'm sorry, Supreme Court ruled unanimously you can't do that. Limit contributions to uh, initiative campaigns. Sorry, you can't do that, although we, maybe a hive, $100,000, maybe that might be constitutional, but not under this court. You can't limit spending. So th there's a real problem with what you can do in terms of spending. Now what we like to see is more disclosure to the voters. We think that most of you decide on how to vote on initiatives or ballot measures by who is supporting and who is opposing. You'll take a look, the Sierra Club supporting this, is the Chamber of Commerce opposing this? Um, and, and, and so you'll take a look at that. So we would suggest that the ballot pamphlet contain an extra page listing on one side those people and organizations supporting, and on the other side those people and organizations opposing to give you more cues in terms of how you're gonna vote on the initiative. Let me, let me give you the practical problem with that solution. And that is that the ballot pamphlet that you receive, you have one of those there, Bob, don't you? The ones that you receive before every election that has the pro and con arguments is printed up about uh, August, August for a November election. So what's the campaign gonna do? They're gonna have, not the big funders come in first, they're gonna have the smaller funders come in. The uh, Society for Preserving Sunshine in California is going to fund this initiative. <laughs> And then the tobacco industry or the public employees union, they're going to fund it after that is printed up. And that's a problem. Now, you can put it on the internet, but you can put it on the internet now. And right now, as you, as you may recall, any ads that are made has to list the top two funders for the campaign right up to the election. If the, if, if the week before the election, a new funder comes in and becomes number one, you've got to change that, that line in the ad and say who the number one and number two funders are. So there is some transparency in it now, and I really believe uh, that the system would be gamed uh, well, well, Joel, on a change. Joel's talking about a bill pending before the governor right now to require that. I'm talking about listing supporters and opponents, not the funders. There is the pr proponents would list who their supporters are and would but appeal to the That public. could be game too. Okay. okay. Just, just a little practical politics there. <laughs> what, what can't be gamed um, is, is the list of funders uh, in the campaign to qualify a measure. That can't be gamed. That's on record, and that can be put in the ballot pamphlet. But that, again, um, it's, 
it's gaming, it can be gamed in the sense that those are not necessarily the funders who will contribute more and more and more during the campaign itself. No, it's just, you just will know who put the thing on the ballot, that's all. That's right. You know, and Bob, I you, raised a, mm -hmm. you raised an interesting issue about uh, uh, you know, having, whether it's the legislative analyst or the uh, director of finance, someone uh, disclose how much an initiative is going to cost in terms of real costs. And I wonder, in 1978, uh, the people voted to reinstate the death penalty. And lately, there's been a lot of uh, criticism about how much that's costing. I think it's $125, $130 million a year, and only 13 executions. I wonder if, if that kind of information was provided to the voters uh, you know, next year, what kind of reaction? I mean, uh, I think the death penalty is still has the majority vote, but I wonder if faced with what the actual costs were, uh, what the vote would be. Your former colleague, uh, Richard Alicon, wrote a very... Right. Arthur Alarcon. Arthur yeah. Alarcon yeah. wrote a very uh, uh, powerful a piece. Of yeah. Yeah. But but uh, that there is a responsibility now for initiatives to have a cost tag to it. Uh, the legislative analysts in the Department of Finance do the best they can. Yeah. Uh, and in 1978, I don't know if they could have calculated the cost of the death penalty. But there is a move now, I believe, to put a uh, to um, initiative on the ballot. Uh, to eliminate the death penalty, isn't that so? I think, I think uh, is, uh, um, Mr. Garcetti was, without, was involved uh, with that bill. Yeah, Lonnie Hancock's going to be So that, what you're asking for, Justice, will appear, if, they, if, if those numbers are accurate, uh, from the legislative analyst and the Department of Finance, those numbers actually will appear on the ballot because they have that responsibility. I'm wondering if you each had a single thing that you would do to improve the, the uh, process, what would it be? The single one that you had to choose. Bob? Well, I suppose the hardest one is the indirect initiative because the voters don't trust the legislature to do the right thing. And every time we poll it, it, it doesn't poll very well because of the mistrust of the legislature. The easiest one is the one that Joel says won't do that much, but that is to add the page to the ballot pamphlet with the pros and cons, with, with the people who are supporting and opposing, because we think the voters really want to get cues, and that's a good shortcut uh, for the um, for the voters. Mm. Peter, what would you do? I mean, what what I'd like or what can be done? What I what I'd like <laughs> is to eliminate it. Period. <laughs> Just get rid of it. And I mean, at half the states in this country don't have the initiative process, and nobody can tell me that they are not governed as well as California. Justice Moreno? Uh, I, I would say a, a word limit in simple, plain English. Uh-huh. And Joel, Mr. Fox? Um, bef may I respond to Peter first? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are, there, are, there are two electorates in California. One that, uh, and, and this is not my theory, it's... Uh, Bruce Kane. Uh, you know, John Matsusaka at USC and Bruce Kane up at... Uh, Berkeley and, and uh, Eugene Volokh over at the UCLA have all said the same thing. There are two electrics, in, and two electrics in California. One that elects your representatives and one that votes directly on measures in the ballot. And you'll notice that they don't always match up. In fact, frequently they don't match up. You, you, you will elect an elective body that would never take the position that the voters as a whole would take on, a, on ballot measures. And we can name a whole slew of them. So I think that outlet of the initiative process is important, Peter, and you and I have talked about this for about 30 years, so I don't think we've ever changed each other. We can do this by numbers. Yeah. Um, How about you? Well, I think the only thing we agree on, believe it or not, out here in Los Angeles, we're both Red Sox fans. Uh, um, the thing I would change, uh, a little interestingly, I think, um, I would take the power of the title and summary away from the Attorney General, which is a partisan office, and give it to like, the legislative analyst or, or another office like that to write the title and summary because they're often, the title and summaries often end up in Justice Marino's court or actually not his court but uh, the Superior Court in, in Sacramento, Sacramento. Uh, because there's always political arguments over that title and summary because often voters just look at those and determine how they're going to vote on measures. So it's a very important, very important, uh, very important piece of uh, how people will determine how they're going to vote and 
for, this is not against uh, Attorney General Harris, nor was it against Attorney General Lundgren or any of them, but it's a partisan office. And, and I, I, I believe that that power should be taken away from the Attorney General. Can I just supplement that with one thing? The legislature right now writes the title and summary for the bills it puts on the ballot. Not only do they write the title and summary themselves, they also pick the supporter, the proponents and opponents who write the arguments. And so there was one time in, 19, in 2000 where the League of Women Voters went to the legislature and said, we're against this proposition, please let us write the argument against it. And they said, no. And then they went to the person who was appointed to write the argument against it and said, please put us in your argument that we're opposed to this uh, ballot proposition. No. And they wrote a ballot proposition, uh, an argument against it. There was a phony argument against it, and the voters actually, in this case, were fooled into passing it. So that's the one supplement I would make is that but the I, I think legislature should. Wasn't there a recent lawsuit that will now prohibit the legislature from writing their own I, titles? I believe that I that's think the that's case. True, yeah. so we may the, see improvement in the, yeah. in the coming years. In, I have uh, one more question, and this is, I hope we can do this quickly. One possibility uh, that has been proposed by Joe Matthews and, and Mark Paul in California Crackup is their book, California Crackup, is we might have fewer initiatives if we use the referendum process more. What do you think about that? In other words, encourage people to contest what the legislature passes instead of doing their own thing with the initiative. You know, I've Five come, seconds. I, I've come up with some really wacky ideas. That is about the wackiest. I talk about undercutting the legislature because what it means is that many legislative bills will be tossed out because remember when you put a referendum on the ballot, if you vote no, the measure is defeated, the legislative measure is defeated, and you'll see a lot of legislative bills then defeated. So that's really, I think, one of the most irresponsible recommendations I've heard. I've told Joe that. I see. Well, well Joe got so. the idea, Joe has studied, the, the initiative process uh, before it was in the United States came out of Switzerland. And they do a lot of that in Switzerland, but it's obviously a different, <laughs> a different environment, different demographic, and all the rest. And while it may work over there, I don't think it would work over here. Any other comments? Uh, well, it's act, I mean, the difference between Switzerland here is that in Switzerland, it's a collaborative process with the legislature, and here it's basically uh, an adversarial process. Yes, indeed. I think it's time for questions from the audience. I'm Bill Kelleher, and uh, they have a question for Bob. Would you have the, the initiative process put online for people to officially vote, registered voters to officially vote for or against a proposition online? At this point, I think the answer is no, I wouldn't. I can see maybe in 20 or 30 years when we, when we can develop a system to ensure, number one, the privacy of the vote, that we can ensure that the vote is gonna be accurately counted and ensure that people have confidence in that. At some point that may happen, but certainly not in the near future. Can you speak a little bit to, oftentimes when people talk about an issue, they say 70% of the voters are in support of this or are opposed to this, but in actuality, a much lower number of, of registered voters actually participate in the elector, election process, so that what you end up is with a small minority of voters actually deciding something that affects a much larger number of people. So can you speak to how you would address that deficiency, how you would maybe increase voter turnout so that initiatives do more accurately reflect the actual will of the people or possibly limit the initiative process such that if there isn't a sufficient number of majority of voters actually participating in the election process, then initiative maybe will fail or something like that. And you obviously have the same problem in candidate elections as well. Um, you know, we can say that 52% of Americans voted for a, a, Barack Obama, but in fact, you know, that's, that itself is a minority of eligible voters and, and so on. Um, I think in terms of the initiative process, the thing, and I think Justice Moreno has talked about this, I think, very well, I think the problem is a greater one, and that is by its nature, the initiative process is a purely majoritarian process. It, so that if 50.1% of the voters in California um, wanted to deny uh, immigrants the right to go to school, uh, or illegal immigrants the right to go to school, they could do that. Um, there's, uh, and that can be, and that, that and as I say, that, uh, and, and, and minorities, by definition, have very little input into this, into that process. In the legislative process, normally, and I agree we have, 
we have the, 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 the mushroom bills and so on. But in the legislative process, normally um, there are hearings, uh, there's, two, there's two house agreement, there's a gubernatorial uh, veto, there, there's a whole lot of uh, input, and legislators by their nature try not to offend any more people than they can. So, so minorities have some sway in, that, in, in the normal legislative process. I agree that there are all kinds of problems and I, I don't deny those, but in the initiative process, none of that happens. But you do have the courts with the ability to judge whether rights are taken away properly or not and to overturn an initiative. Except for, the expensive, it takes a long except, time. except for the alligator in the bathtub. Right. My question is about the um, standing of proponents to sue on behalf of initiative if the, if the governor or the, the attorney general does decline doing so, which is the case, the Prop 8 case right now. The court is determining whether or not they have standing, and the linchpin in that is that they didn't have a sentence in the initiative saying that they had standing, which the previous gay marriage initiative did it had a sentence saying that the proponents of that initiative did have standing. If the court determines that those proponents do not have standing, as we hope they do, um, then does that mean that that sentence is going to show up in every single initiative? Every initiative is going to be now proponents saying, and we have standing to defend this initiative in court. And, and then further, if the court determines that they don't have standing, does that mean that that sentence is illegal? You know, I'm afraid I can't really even address anything related to the standing issues since I was on the court and, and voted for the court to accept that case. So I'm privy to some confidential memos. I mean, I don't know how the court is going to come out. The California Supreme Court is going to come out on it. My understanding, though, is uh, that if they say that uh, the proponents have standing, then you know, it'll be litigated in, in, in federal court. That's where the case came from. The California Supreme Court has already addressed the constitutionality of, of, uh, of the proposition. Uh, and state, I, state constitution. State constitution, yeah. right. Yes. So uh, I don't, I'm not sure if that really answers your, your well, question Well, I, I have an opinion as a layman uh, who has been a proponent. Um, if, if, in fact, the people supported a measure and, and then it becomes a responsibility uh, if once it's the law of the state of the attorney general and the governor or whomever to defend it and they refuse to do so uh, whether I like that measure or not I think the proponents should have the ability to make the arguments in front of the court um, in fact I remember in Prop 187 um, I remember writing an op-ed piece in, in the LA Times because uh, I think it was Governor Davis um, sued I can't remember who he sued but he sued him, himself almost so he was on both sides of the issue. Yeah. And, and, and I, I didn't necessarily disagree with the governor's position, but I disagreed with what he did because I think the court is an adversarial position to decide the constitutionality of a law. And you should have people on different sides, on the two benches, who are adversaries. Whether, you know, uh, and and uh, so I, I really do think that if the, the, the government doesn't step up as it should to represent the people and the proponents ought to have that role. I, I completely yeah. agree. And in prior cases, I mean, when Prop 8 and the marriage cases were litigated, uh, the court did grant uh, intervener status uh, to the uh, proponents. So in one sense, it would appear to be uh, that you wouldn't have adversity, uh, you know, competing interests to give you both sides of an issue. As long as the people have the right to pass initiatives, there's, it, it would be crazy for the for the attorney general or the governor to simply vitiate that right mm -hmm. uh, by refusing to defend it. While listening here, by the way, I, am, I do not vote in California. I'm a, a resident of the United States, so I can't vote, so I do pay my taxes, so I do get no representation while paying taxes, and I can't even participate in direct democracy. But after having listened to you, I have a few suggestions to how we could improve direct democracy. One is, I think the direct initiative should only be on the ballot in Novembers of even years so that the vast majority of the population does vote on it. Second thing is that there should be a required quorum for a proposition to pass that a certain percentage 
of the registered voters, at least 50% should say yes. If somebody leaves it off the ballot, it should be considered a no. The second thing is, why is it in a direct democracy that some ballot measures require two-thirds majority, while others only require 50.1? Uh, they all require 50% plus mm -hmm. one. Except at the local level. Well, well oh, you're saying ballot measures. Well, the local, well, level well, local ballot, ballot measures. measures. You oh. do have a point, uh, yes. Your, your first point is a bill pending before the governor right now that he probably is going to sign to move all the initiatives to November. Now, I'm actually against that because what it means is we're going to load up the November ballot and you're going to be seeing many, many ballot measures and the legislature can put its measures on the June ballot. Yeah. So oh. <laughs> uh, I think if, you know, if, if initiatives go on the November ballot, legislative measures should go on the uh, November ballot. Exactly. Your second point is really an interesting one. That was, your point was, um, it should be 50% of registered voters or 50% of the people voting should approve it. Italy has that. And there was a measure in Italy to um, re re remove restrictions on abortions. And it made it to the ballot. And the Catholic Church, church urged its people to abstain, not go vote. And the measure was defeated because people didn't vote on the measure. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that's a good idea. The interesting thing, and Joel knows this, but the interesting thing is Prop 13 actually got more votes yes and no than all the gubernatorial candidates combined. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, hi, I'm Mike Feinstein, a state Green Party spokesperson, and I want to express the following frustration. Um, to Joel's point about the legislature not being popular, I think if we move from our single-seat winner-take-all elections to multi-seat with proportional representation, as in California crack-up, we might at least, if people aren't happy with all the policy, they might at least feel more represented by who's there, and that would change. But for all these initiative reforms, as, as uh, Peter's talking about, of 500 amendments that are conflicting and ballot box budgeting, and Bob saying if, prop, or if uh, SB 202 passes, but then we also got your thing about having a year to get signatures, now how many, you know, we might have millions of measures on, on the November ballot. That's why I was in the Constitutional Convention movement a couple of years ago, because these moving pieces don't work unless they're all together. And I really fear that the illusion that Prop 11 and Prop 14 are really going to change anything fundamental in the state is going to take away any momentum for having comprehensive constitutional change. So these are great, you know, brilliant audience here, brilliant panel, great ideas. I don't see how we put them together in ways that are going to work. There seems to be some movement um, to actually enlarge the legislature, have more members. And that may be a good idea. Uh, we, right now, our senators represent almost a million people, uh, more than <laughs> United States senators in certain states. Um, and, and, and that may be one way to do it, to enlar you know, enlarge the bodies, um, which is not quite... I, and I know your concern, you and I have talked a lot, uh, I know your concern about uh, the, how Prop 11 hurt some of the minor parties, but um, I think... I think maybe enlarging the legislature may give the, the minor parties an opportunity and also um, bring, bring back, uh, I don't know, but maybe bring back some uh, of the legislative uh, prowess that uh, we've seen in the past that seems to have been lost. I don't know what you fellows think about that. I, I, uh, I mean, uh, I like uh, Paul and Matthew's idea of multi-member districts. Um, and uh, l larger districts with multi-members, um, and maybe even proportional representation. I think that would be, uh, getting that sold to California voters may be very difficult, but I like the idea. I think it's certainly true that there, it, it's never going to be easy, maybe it's impossible, to really say which of the various reforms that have been passed and which that have been proposed are responsible for what aspects of change in California government. As uh, the League of Women Voters has strongly supported Proposition 11, and I'm thrilled by the way the commission has worked, but there is still the fact that there are other changes going on at the same time, Prop 14 being one, and so we'll never be able to completely pin down what is responsible for what, but I don't think that's the reason not to continue with those changes that make sense and that can be done, even if they're just incremental improvements. This is a very smart audience, but let me just tell you, Prop 11 is the redistricting commission. Oh, I'm sorry. Prop Thank 14 you. is the top two, which goes into effect next year, just, just in case you've forgotten the numbers. Thank you. <laughs> and looking at my checklist, in, in 1962, there was an initiative to increase the uh, number of senatorial districts from 40 to 50, and it failed. 
Top third, 23. Was it initially? Yeah. <laughs> because people don't want more politicians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name is Todd, and it seems to me we spend many millions to make sure that we can operate state government. And I don't really trust the uh, fellow voters to be equipped to deal with the vagaries of the language that goes into a lot of these propositions. In fact, I'm convinced that a cleverly worded proposition would allow us to outlaw water. So why should we stick with this system that seems to be, frankly, circumventing the legislature that we put into position by our votes in the first place? Well, again, I challenge the audience to name an initiative that's passed that the voters regretted passing. You know, we talked about earlier that there were, you know, there were two electors, the people... The, the people uh, sometimes have a different opinion than the elected body. And uh, Dan Walters this week reminded me of a, of a book that was written a few years ago by H.L. Richardson called, he was a state senator, who said, do you think we read the bills? <laughs> they get, you know, they get 600 bills and they get them right at the last minute. And uh, is that the correct title? Do you think? Uh, what makes you think? What, what makes you think we, we read, read the, the bills? bills? I have a copy. It's so, signed by. So, I know the voters don't. Yeah. Well, the legislators don't either. Apparently, you know, in many instances. So it's it's an it's an, an escape. You know, it was created as an escape valve. It's pro. It, I, I will admit it's certainly grown more than that. But I don't want to eliminate that, uh, that, that safety valve, it's a better term. I don't want to eliminate that safety valve when it's needed. Uh, uh, Peter. One caution, uh, uh, having watched this, uh, be careful of uh, uh, enthusiasm for any kind of reform. They have lots of unintended consequences. And be aware of the fact that part, a good part of California's problem is not a structural, it's not constitutional, it's cultural. It's a, we have a culture that is very div divided and div very diverse um, and very ambivalent on many things. It wants goodies, doesn't want to pay for them. Um, there are all of those things going on. So um, I, I think one of the things that as we think about constitutional reform or changing the initiative or whatever, um, I think you have to be cautious about all of them. Mm -hmm. And I would say, and this almost seems inadequate at the time, but there's still the fact that the mission of the League of Women Voters, but the mission probably of everyone in this audience is to educate ourselves, to educate the voters to the extent we possibly can. And that's a, a huge challenge, but I'm, I'm afraid that that, given the, the fact that most people want to keep this process, they're willing to see reforms in it, but it's, I think, here to stay. Education is, it has got to be a major part of how we go forward from here. Let's hear it for the League of Women Voters. Thank you.